Welcome to Healing Voices Project, where we share stories of addiction, grief, recovery, and courage. And also from people who work every day in the field of substance abuse who discuss their experiences and advice. I'm Mike Torville, your host. Thank you all for joining us. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Healing Voices Project. We're glad to have you all here. And we also have a few other special people here today. We have actually a few guests. One is Michael Blanchard, who has his story to tell. Also about his gallery, Michael Blanchard uh, Photography on Martha's Vineyard. And he has a really compelling and inspirational story to tell. But before that, uh, we have a few guests from Mira Vista program in Holyoke. Um, that is relatively new. It's about a year and a half old if that. And we have a couple of guests uh, from Mira Vista to talk, Christina Rivera and Jay Danik. And uh, thanks you both. Thanks both of you for joining us today. Thanks. Oh, very nice to be here. Yeah. Glad to have you. Um, and, uh, you know, first I'll start um, with Jay Danik and, and Jay has been with the opioid treatment program as a director for 10 years, including the past year with Mira Vista Behavioral Health Center. Jay's mission has always been to work with marginalized populations in a variety of settings, psychiatric care, school clinical services, as a former director of the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children and adjunct professor at Springfield College's Graduate School of Social Work. Jay lives in Granville, Massachusetts, has a husband, five children, seven grandchildren, and also two spoiled cats. So <laughs> you got a handful there. Yes, uh, we do. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jay, for joining us. Um, and then we'll get with Christina uh, quickly. And uh, so, Jay, tell us a little bit about what you have going on at Mira Vista. Well, first of all, good morning to everybody. Um, as, as Mike said, my name is Jay Danik. People call me Jay, and I am the director of the opioid treatment program at Mira Vista. I've been director since 2012, and then I made the transition um, from Providence Hospital, which is our former name, to Mira Vista about a year ago. I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker, and I have a long history of working with people in all different kinds of settings, um, inpatient psychiatric, detox, school outpatient programming, and I also have a local private practice. The reason why I work in addiction treatment, uh, particularly a methadone program, is because of lived experience. Um, I do have a loved one, a family member, who has struggled with heroin addiction for many, many years. And methadone literally saved their life. And I was so grateful for this, that when the opportunity arose to be director of a methadone clinic, I just didn't hesitate at all. Um, it's definitely my way of giving back to others for the help that was given to my family. And you know, you would think, uh, oh, she's a methadone director. Uh, bad things probably won't happen in that way to her family. But even so, two years ago, I lost a different family member. It was my grandson, he was 20 years old, and he died uh, for, from an accidental overdose of fentanyl. 
And he was trying to fit in with his peers, be one of the guys, but it cost him his life. And so I keep going, knowing that I'm helping other families. And that's really been my mission. Today, I've been asked to talk about the opioid treatment program at Mira Vista. Um, because I want people to know that there is a very compassionate therapeutic program in the community for opioid addiction. And when you hear the letters OTP, it stands for Opioid Treatment Program. And we dispense here at MiraVista, we dispense methadone to about 600 patients who have an addiction to opiates. And this is not only street heroin, but uh, also any kind of prescription narcotics like Vicodin, Percocet, OxyContin, and the like. And our nurses see our patients every day at the dosing windows. They check on people's well-being, and they do that before every dose is dispensed. And as you can imagine, over many, many years, we've had patients with us for 20 years, um, some you know, very much shorter, but there's a lot of bonding that occurs between our nurses and our clinicians and our patients because we see them through all of life's challenges. And our patients also carry other addictions. It's not just heroin or prescription pain pills. It's also cocaine, um, benzodiazepines and sedatives and alcohol. And we address it all. Um, fentanyl, as you know, is, is rampant in the community. It's laced in with benzodiazepines and cocaine and other opiates. It's very, very dangerous. And we notify every patient with a positive drug screen if they're positive for fentanyl so they can take precautions. And we work with people individually. We, you know, some patients want to be abstinent from all drugs of any kind, and that's fine. That's their choice. Others just want to reduce their use called harm reduction. And we base it on whatever the patient's goals are. But we make sure every patient has Narcan too, in case of an overdose. And right now, due to COVID, we're giving patients a lot of take-home medication um, so that they don't have to come into the clinic on a daily basis. And what we're aiming for in the OTP is to have same-day admissions, where if somebody calls up, they're in a bad way, they need help, we'll get them right in, we'll do the screening, we'll do the intake, we'll do the dosing all on the same day. Um, Right now, our dosing hours begin at 5.15 in the morning and because we have people who want to dose before they go to their jobs, before they go to school. They want to get home for their children to get on buses. Um, and then we end around noontime, but it's 365 days a year, seven days a week we're available. And along with receiving methadone, we offer our patients a recovery program that goes with it. The recovery program includes individual counseling and group therapy. And right now we have about 20 groups that are running. Um, some of the names are like grief and loss, uh, relapse prevention. We have a no buts about it group, which is about ending tobacco use. We have a mommy and me group for our pregnant patients. And we have annual groups like overdose prevention and nicotine and gambling. We address all kinds of addiction. Wow. And we offer our counseling sessions through telehealth so that patients can be at home in the comfort of their home and call in for their counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, those who prefer to come in, we also have that as well. We have on-site services. Uh, 
And counseling hours start at six in the morning and they go through 3.30 in the afternoon. And all of our counselors are master's level staff. So what our goal is at Miravista is to help change unhealthy lifestyles and to improve people's daily functioning and return people to employment, to school, to parenting, and we try to keep families together. And there are a lot of myths about methadone, um, but I just want to reassure everybody in the community that methadone is very, very safe, even during pregnancy. So, and the length of stay can be short or long-term, and it's determined by you, the patient, as well as your caregiver. So right now, Mira Vista OTP is accepting new patients. We welcome anybody who needs help. And the only thing the person needs to do is call 701-2600 and ask for help. That's 701-2600. And we are there for you. Uh, thank you, Jay. That was a lot of okay. great information. Thanks for sharing that. Also, too, sure. I think it's important to mention the website, miravistabhc.com. It's yes. miravistabhc.com. And, and thank you. visit the website, call, and either way, you'll get that information. And again, I think we'll have, there's a lot of information to unpack there. We'll have you back okay. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that in depth. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're very that. welcome. Um, and uh, we also have Christina, um, Christina Rivera, who is a licensed independent clinical social worker from Miravista, who's been with Miravista since May of 21, which is um, since it's opened, I believe, right? Yes. Um, and you were the director of outpatient services, and you've had 14 years of experience. Um, community agencies and medical hospitals. So, Christine, I want to tell a little bit about what what you have going on, and then we'll yeah, uh, jump into Michael Blanchard. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. So, Maravista, um, as Jay has says, we offer a lot of services to the community for recovery um, as well as for mental health. Um, we have a psych unit for adolescents and adults, as well as a detox and a CSS. Um, I am the director of outpatient services uh, for substance use specifically, where we offer an intensive outpatient program that runs from 9.30 to 1 o'clock, uh, Monday through Friday. And we also do individual counseling and some um, mandated services as well for Massachusetts impaired driving and substance abuse evaluations. Uh, we have four master's level clinicians. Um, and we're just a small but mighty group. We love to be able to serve our, our community. Um, and we're small, but we're able to tailor people's recovery to what they need. And I think that speaks for everybody's, uh, mission at Maravista. And that's so, great. You're just getting started too. Just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> so during the month of, uh, for the recovery month, we wanted to do some things for our, um, the people that we serve for the community. So we're having some breakfast um, served on a couple different days for um, OTP as well as, as well as OPS. And as you know, we're hosting um, Mike to come and um, we're doing something called, um, I think, what did we end up calling it? Uh, per photo of recovery or lens to recovery. I think uh, we came up with a clever name um, to try to have something for the community are the patients that we serve as well as um, family members, staff, um, just something just to show the success that you can have and also the fun and recovery. I think um, 
we get so it's difficult, you know, you're trying to change your life and we, we want people to see um, the other side of it. So that's great. That's great. Yeah. And now the event is on September 27th. And can you give the location of that event? Yep. It's uh, at 6 PM. Um, and it is at 1233 main street in Holyoke at Mayor Vista. Um, it'll be in the community room that we have um, connected to our main building. Um, and just a quick thing. I think uh, the website's maravistabhc.care. Dot care. Yes. Thank you for that. Correction. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so we look forward to, you know, meeting Mike in person finally and also having some fun with our community. That's great. And, and thank you very much for, for sharing that, too. And, and I'm glad you pointed out that correction. It's such a habit of saying dot com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, and by the way, just on a little side note, which is neither here nor there, but years ago, I worked at Providence Hospital. And I managed several departments back then, the, the housekeeping, linen, security, grounds. I know every inch of that building. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, boy. <laughs> memories, though. Good memories. memories. <laughs> yeah, good ones. Um, well, thank you both for joining. And as a reminder, again, it's miravistabhc.care. Uh, visit the website. Uh, again, Jay, do you want to repeat that phone number again? Yes, the phone number is 701-2600. Okay, area code 413. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining us. We will have you back again. We have lots more to talk about. And we will get now to our uh, main guest of honor, Michael Blanchard. Um, Michael, thanks for joining us. Uh, we, we can't hear you, Mike. Can you... Let's get back off of mute. Okay. <laughs> Usually people don't have any trouble hearing me. <laughs> okay. We hear you now. All right. Um, cool. Nice. Thank to you very you. much. And, and Michael, a, a very quick introduction, because I know there's lots to talk about. First, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Michael's a writer, has a, a few books out. Um, also a photographer, a beautiful photographer. And I was on your website and I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, love your work. Uh, and, and it's, it's phenomenal. Um, but in addition to talking about your, your, your gallery, um, the Crossroads Gallery on Martha's Vineyard, correct? That's correct. Yep. Uh, and, uh, but you also have a, you have a personal story to share and, and your life experiences. And, um, so first let's, let's talk about your, your website and, um, your, your, your gallery, just to get a reference and, if people want to visit the website, what is the website, Mike? So it's Blanchard Photo MV, as in Martha's Vineyard, BlanchardPhotoMV.com. Okay. And, um, it should be easy to remember Martha's Vineyard since we're all over the news this morning. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> I have my on-island shirt, you know, it's like, oh my God, what? we never thought we'd be centered there, but I'm proud of the island for the way they're getting together to help the the immigrants that have arrived. So that's a whole nother story. But, yeah, it is, right, right. Yeah. And you're, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, you're right. You can't help noticing Martha's Vineyards everywhere you look now, you know. Oh. Wow. Well, you know, and, and I wanted to mention the gallery because, um, I, again, being on the website and you've got some of your artwork for sale, but it's gorgeous. I, the lighting and the, and I, I was reading about what you're doing. You're, you're getting yourself up out of bed in the wee hours of the evening, night, morning to, uh, to position yourself for some of those photographs, but I can say that uh, phenomenal work. Oh, thank you. I mean, it, it's 
something that um, many of us have a goal in mind when we start out. You're gonna end, you're gonna come to a destination. You're gonna achieve your goals. And how I became a photographer and a gallery owner is would be the most absurd uh, outcome you could ever think of back in the days. And you're you were in healthcare at Providence Hospital. I was the chief operating officer in the laboratory business working from everybody from quest diagnostics to um i, I ran main health uh, laboratory system up in portland mm -hmm. and so i've always been in healthcare too so the thought of actually being an artist would be so foreign as to be you know almost incomprehensible <laughs> but what's happened mike is that the and i think this is the most important thing is that the writing part together with the photos has has turned the gallery like into this really cool spiritual meeting place and I have people that come now from, uh, you know, all around the country and we share stories. There's power when you put words together with photos. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, I think if, if uh, there's one photo that I took, I'm going to show at the program coming up this week that has nothing to do with alcoholism, but it has to do with loss. <clears throat> and I had a dog that I lost from leukemia at seven years of age. And I show a photo. If I tell you that story, you know, you can empathize and I'm sure you've gone through similar things. Oh yeah. But I also have a photo of our last set of footprints in the sand. I've got dog footprints right next to mine. And when you show that photo together with the story, it has a power that gets right through to somebody's soul. And that's what I've learned that I can communicate a message that hopefully gets somebody to take action or to give somebody that's got uh, no hope, hope. And it's been just the coolest thing to um, be able to mix the two. Uh, and we all have like us addicts, alcoholics. I mean, I, I've been arrested four times for drunk driving in my life. Um, and three of them were within a three month time period. That's hard to do, man. It's, it's like, you know what? I used to sit there and say, how the hell could that happen? I mean, I, I wasn't even swerving or anything. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that God sent police officers to save my life. Plain and simple. And every police officer I bump into these days, I thank them for their service because without them, I wouldn't be here. And uh, so, you know, that whole episode led to my desire to not want to be here anymore. And so I purchased a uh, hundred Xanax on the internet wanted to end it. And I started consuming those Xanax and I had my plan interrupted and I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. And so I hit a pretty low bottom about 12 years ago. And, um, you know, it ended up being, and that's part of the reason I'm doing these talks is there's a lot of folks that are going to be in that, in that hall that are going to think they just threw their life away. Their bottom is just awful. They hurt people. And what I found is that sometimes the end is the beginning and it's a matter of what you do with it, you know? And yeah. um, so it got kind of, that's my mission is that um, like the people that just jumped off from Mira Vista, I got my master's in psychology because I wanted to be a licensed addiction counselor. And then someone looked at me and said, Mike, you ain't going to cut it as a licensed addiction counselor. You get too close to people. So she said, you're a better seed planter than a crop grower. I said, all right, cool. I can go with that. All right. Yeah. So either way uh, works. All right. Yeah. So I get to lots of people, but not in great depth and, and, you know, try to give them some motivation to seek help and hope that they can overcome their low bottom, you know? And so it's kind of the way my life is developed or in addition to the photographs. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, you're right. You made a point that, um, and so many people I've spoken with have said, I'm in a position now where 
I would never thought I'd be in a million years. If you had asked me, yeah. if, this, if they say, well, I was in a position where I was in jail, I was homeless, I lost everything and, and something transformed in them. And they're in a position taking up a different profession and finding a new life completely away from wherever they, they thought they'd be, not in a million years. And it sounds like you've experienced that too, but so let, let's go back a little bit um, to, to how this all started, Mike. Um, I mean, you, you got arrested four times and three times with it, but prior to that, um, how did it all start? Gradually. I mean, you know, there's several, there's like three or four different paths to alcoholism. Some people take the first sip and they're off to the races. With me, it was the gradual progression over 35 years. I mean, it was almost imperceptible. I mean, when you're a functional alcoholic, mm-hmm. you know, I was a marathon runner, right? I mean, if there was an alcoholic Olympics, man, look out because I'd be like in first place in the marathon, I'm telling you. <laughs> but it's not unusual for athletes to get that way. You know, we, you end up, you know, when I studied in my master's program, uh, marathoners, other athletes that, you know, you get the endorphin high, I'd run a hundred miles a week, the endorphins that would give you a sense of peace and relief. I became used to having that feeling as taking the edge off for the day, but eventually we get old, you know, and suddenly the body breaks down. You can't run the hundred miles anymore. And you start drinking a glass of wine at night. And that says, wow, that's actually more potent than, than endorphins. And then if you have that addictive gene or, or propensity, it takes off from there, you know, and, and so up and down over the years, but um, gradually depending more and more on it. And, and, you know, what it really comes down to is, is that I was haunted by a lack of, of, you know, self-love or, or any, any idea of what I was supposed to be or what I was supposed to do. And so, you know, I, I find that not only is there the the relief from the alcohol, but usually there's something kicking underneath that you're just trying to just bury. That's usually the case. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And so unless you get at that, but you know what, there's a point where you step over the line and, you know, if you, if you gave me a yacht and all the money I wanted and, you know, anything I could think of in terms of happiness, you sent me off to the Caribbean on a sailboat and you said, all right, your life's worries are gone. You're fulfilled. Everything is there. You give me a glass of wine, I'd probably be dead in two months. Um, so I have, I've accepted, I have a knowing that I have a disease that I can't, just like diabetes, you may not like it, but you got the diagnosis, you either deal with it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And in that knowing comes peace. And I try to tell people there's a peace of knowing that you can't, that you are an alcoholic, you do have the disease of alcoholism, and then you just move on. And it just removes to, the question. It, of, and that's the torture is yeah. the question. Yeah. You know? So, you know, and eventually it ended with um, just drinking. You know, I, I was a chief operating officer with a thousand employees and I would take my Poland spring bottles and fill them with straight vodka and I'd go into work and oh. I was chewing a lot of gum, man, chewing a lot of gum, <laughs> trying to hide the smell. And, uh, if, you know, there were a few people that suspected it. Um, so the, the vodka, the straight vodka led to ulcers, led to uh, all kinds of health issues. And I would drink maybe a, you know, a quart a day. Um, wow. it, it was pretty insane right out of the bottle. And wow. I even hiked Mount Washington in New Hampshire once with four bottles filled with vodka because God wasn't listening to me down here. And I figured maybe if I got a little closer at like 7,000 feet, 
I could get them to tune in. And it was just, it was almost didn't make it back down. I mean, you can't hike a 7,000 foot peak drunk. <laughs> it's not good. I would not recommend it. But those are the kinds of things that spiral when you get down to the collapsing point, you know. Um, so I've always been, you know, a non-artistic business person who never wanted to be a business person and never had any kind of uh, a sense of where this was all supposed to end up. And um, and of uh, the most odd things in July 26, 2010, I, I became sober. And so I just hit 12 years this July. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Um, and um, but two years into sobriety, I was like most of us that are new, you know, antsy, you know, go home. I was still the CEO. They didn't fire me. Thank God, because of a physician there in the psychiatric hospital when I went, I had been, I was in for three weeks for suicidal ideation and all that. And this man who was the medical director of the entire facility came to my bedside and he looked at me in the eye and he said, I was like you. And he said, well, I, I don't understand. He said, I was on life support with a 600 uh, blood alcohol here at our main health organization they kept me alive and they sent me to this rehab in atlanta and it saved my life and he said i am going to go talk to the executives at main health and i'm going to tell them if we can send you there that we can that you just might make it too and because of that angel because of that person that personal intervention they kept me at the company with three duis in three months and um, they sent me to this place that just saved me a three-month rehab and and um, and when I came back, I owed them and I worked for another eight years and helped turn the company around. But two years into sobriety, I heard a speech. Um, I went my wife at the time, we went to her graduation speech and I was like almost asleep. <laughs> and this grad, she goes, OK, and I'm going to implore you find your passion. You've got to find your passion. He says, I want to tell you a story about an alcoholic bipolar businessman. And I'm going like, what? <laughs> How the hell did she know my story? Who found um peace connection and essentially a whole new life through the taking and editing of photographs and it's like i don't understand how stuff like that gets planted in your soul it's almost like richard dreyfus in close encounters of the third kind where he had something inside him and he started building that damn mud thing on oh yeah table. mashed potatoes your mashed potatoes man <laughs> so i had mashed potatoes inside me that i needed to get out and suddenly i said you know what i have no idea i hate i don't don't care about photography. I have no interest in this whatsoever. But I started like obsessively watching YouTube videos. And I bought a camera and I'd go running out and I'd start like taking pictures and then I'd re do another one and another one. And it became like this obsession. And you didn't have any experience with photography before. No. Right? People come in and say, How well, did you used to use film? I said, No, I they think I've been doing this since I was like 20 years old or something. <laughs> And it started like at 50, at 52, 53. Yeah. And it just, I just, but what happened? And this is the important thing, because I only have one story and you have so many people on your, on your show and otherwise that have their story. And my story is around the way that that took me back to the world. Because, you know, you, know, you get home from work at night. And between five and nine is torture when you're first getting sober. You go to a meeting, you're trying, you want that glass of wine, you want to take the edge off. It's like every day in the beginning is just hard. 
when I discovered photography, I couldn't wait for five to nine to come. I couldn't wait to get home because that's the golden hour. Mm. That's when the clouds were looking cool. I'd go home, grab my camera, look outside and say, oh, this is so great. And I'd go running out the door to take pictures. Imagine like 260 work days per year instead of being in pain, being in joy and what that does to make your sobriety easier to, to achieve. And um and so it was a miracle for me. And, and, um, and I didn't want to have anything to do with people. Um, but I started bumping into people when I was out there with my camera and the coincidences and the stories that evolved from those interactions became the basis of my book. Uh, so it's so funny that you think, Oh, you're a landscape photographer and you know, all that. And if I, it, but it was the interactions with the people that made all the difference. Cause my pictures ended up intersecting with their lives in ways that benefited them. And, mm -hmm. and, and I started to see that I could actually make a difference in people's lives by the taking of pictures and telling of stories. Um, and, and so I went out on Facebook because I'm an addict alcoholic. I took some pictures. People seemed to like them. You know, I'm Ansel Adams. I'm like the best photographer in the whole freaking world. I'm going to show them, show the world how good I am. And so I started posting pictures and my daughter liked my Facebook page. So I had one like. That's <laughs> a start. <laughs> and then I talked to her, all her other 14 year old girlfriends to like the page. So here's a guy with three DUIs that has like 16, 14 year old girls as his only likes on Facebook. <laughs> Not looking good. <laughs> But as I started to tell my story, it took off and um, and and people were shocked at the level of detail that I would express because I wanted I just felt like in rehab, I, I learned that I could help people for the first time. I had I had some self-love that I, I helped people in the rehab. And I said, I want more of this. This is like makes me feel good. This gives I think my life has reason for a purpose. And I it's think, cool. Mike, not to interrupt, I just you said yeah. something that will. I'll, I'll lose the thought if I don't mention it. But when you said you you have a purpose and you can help people versus the other way around, when you were looking at that person talking and you were now shifting from being a burden to people, everybody's supporting you. You may not feel that you had anything to offer, but you were the, the, the person everybody else had to care for. Yeah. And then you flip it over to say, wait a minute, I can be on the other end of this and helping other people. It's a it's a big switch, isn't it? It is. And you almost have to get evidence of it before you can do it. And, you know, when I was at Talbot in, in Atlanta, which was the place that I went in your last month, if you've done all the right things, you become a mentor and then send you to the airport. You know, a new patient comes in. You're there as the patient advocate. Uh, anesthesiologist comes up the stairs with his mom. He's nonverbal. His mom says he's not going to make it. He's losing his job. He's losing his kids. He's losing his family. And I just stand there with him and I bring him to the facility, the intake. I sit there for eight hours. They're screaming, crying. I'm sitting in the room on and on and on for that eight hours trying to get in. I graduate six, uh, four months, four weeks later. Someone, the person says, Does anybody want to say anything to Mike before he leaves the facility? Anesthesiologist steps up and says, You were the most important thing in my recovery. And I'm going, like, What? Me? Uh -oh. <laughs> I didn't do anything. What did I do? He said, You were with me when I was at my lowest. You were with me when I was at my lowest. And when that happens to somebody that doesn't have self love, self worth, it's like, Oh my God, I actually did something that meant so much to this person that it gets in your heart and you just want more of that, you know, and it's selfish in some ways, but it, you know, selfish in a way that's helping people. 
And, and that's why I wanted this to become my goal is that people were attracted to my photos. I have no idea why. I have no professional training. I just do what I do. They like the photos. And I said, you know what? I can, I think I can carry out my mission by writing and attaching the words to the photos. And it went from one like to 60,000. And um, it's just, it's resonated with people. People need to know they're not alone. They need to know they shouldn't be shameful. They shouldn't feel stigma. And they feel like if, if more of us talk about this openly and it becomes a, a, a conversation that that's just a normal conversation, then they're more likely to do something about it. And uh, it's just, it's been the most rewarding thing in the most <laughs> unlikely scenario possible. Um, and so I, you know, I, I want more of that. And so there is the selfish piece, um, but it's, it's, you know, the, the stories together with the photo have magical power. And I never would have guessed that, you know? Yeah. And just as that person looked at you and said, I, I went through what you went through. I was, I, I was where you are now. That means yeah. a lot too. Like you said, it's almost like an angel popping up and saying, giving you a message. And now you in turn to doing the same thing. And, and sometimes without you even being aware of it. Right. No, it was odd because people come to my gallery from all over the country and someone will walk in and they'll know everything about me. <laughs> I, I post four or five times a week. I tell my life story. They come in and say, how's your dog? I'm saying, hi, I'm like, who are you? How's your cat? I mean, I, I know you brought your dog to the vet. How's the dog doing? And so that like, if you and I are sitting here together and I yeah. say something to you and you react, I can see that I made an impact on you because I can see your facial expression. I can see the way you are. Right. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. When you post something in your, I'm in my basement, all right? I, I write words and put a picture out. And then four months later, somebody comes in from Bakersfield, California. And they say, and they hug me. And they say, thank you so much. This made such a difference in my life. It was hard for me because I didn't, I didn't get it. I, I didn't, it's like, there's a disconnect social media. It's, it can be really amazing, but it took me a while to realize that I can actually take a picture and write something that means something enough for someone to want to come all the way to my art gallery to hug, to get a hug. And it was almost uncomfortable at first, <laughs> you know, cause I, part of it is us addicts and alcoholics we still have that self-worth issue that we carry forward and it was almost like i can't really be doing this this isn't you know and it was really hard for me to accept so it's it's but that connection is real and and you know we can beat facebook up and instagram and whatever but it has made all the difference in my life as a vehicle to reaching out to people that need need to hear that they can get to a low place and still have an amazing life and and that's not only the addict alcoholic, but the parents and the, and the siblings and the loved ones that are trying to care for that person. Mm -hmm. They want to see that someone can actually make it back yep. because they're about ready to give up. Yeah. You know? And so sometimes and, that's all it takes. It, and you're right. And sometimes, too, with with what we're doing here, talking about this and same thing with the Facebook posting, you don't see. And I've heard from people saying, hey, I, I've listened. I, I watched your podcast with such and such a guest and it really made a difference. I'm like, wow. Um, and so many times we don't know, but we do it anyway, because there's so many people who, who may be inspired by your message or others to make a difference, make a different decision. Um, and that's why we keep doing it because we'll, we may never know how much it's helped certain individuals. And, uh, 
but this one person, if you can help that person, if you go to the program, okay, I'm giving away some critical information, but there's a slide where I'm standing there with my arms like this. <laughs> it's a little weird. I have a colostomy bag. Yeah. I got operated on emergency surgery. I got flown to Mass General and I had emergency bowel perforation surgery for off Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. I got out and as part of the healing process, I had a colostomy bag and I, I freaked out. It eventually got reversed months later. Mm -hmm. And as I was sitting there with this, trying to manage this, mm -hmm. I said, you know what? These people are freaking warriors. I mean, they, I felt like there was, I felt stigma and shame having it. Like, how am I ever going to find someone? I mean, go on match.com and put in, I don't drink alcohol. You're down to like this right. much of the female population, then throw a colostomy bag on, man, you're pretty much screwed. Okay. It's <laughs> the way it is. Just start your so, own website for that. Yeah. <laughs> so what I did is I, I went out on Facebook and I said, you guys, I love you guys. And I took this weird picture and people from all over the country sent me notes saying, I have a colostomy <laughs> and I'm tired of feeling shameful about it. Yeah, and it's like it almost became a mission for me that I wanted to expose the things that we have chosen as a society to call shameful or stigmatized. And so that's how I kind of use my site. It's not all just about alcohol and, and drugs. It's about trying to be kind to people that are facing adversity. And, and you know, I, I you, you can't do that without a picture. OK, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> you know, but there's the power of photographs again. Right. So I know yeah. it's a little bit of a weird story, but I hope I'm making my point that. Uh, uh, and I certainly get the point. My I will say my my brother went through the same surgery last November. He had to have the bag for six months. He finally yeah. had it taken out in late April. But the point that you described applied to him, too. He says, oh, I can't believe I have to do. This. And he was just so down about it. But he said. Every time I bring it up, I'm shocked at how many people said, oh, I also went through this. Absolutely. Yeah. And he said, and, and he sort of shedded that, that stigma after a while. After a while, it's funny, he started just talking, volunteering it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Give me his phone number, damn it. We, we sounds like we're soulmates, man. I Definitely. We're good friends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, once he had it reversed, he said, you know, it's fine. And now he's also willing to talk to other people about it to say, hey, it's not that bad. Hey, you know, you can go through this. And but the um, power is in knowing yeah. you're not alone. Yes. You That's know, huge. regardless of yeah. the subject, you know, mm -hmm. the, somebody came in the other day with Parkinson's and scared to death. And, you know, it, it, the element we have, we are faced with things that there's power in knowing you're not alone. And I think that's, if that's my job description, then so be it. So, yeah. um, well, you know, we talked a little bit about your writing too, uh, Mike, you got inspired to write your book and put words to some of the photographers and you have two books out now. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about each of those books and how you got started with the first one. Well, fighting for my life was, you know, uh, 2014. I'd only been a photographer for two years. And of course, you know, the ego, I go, right, you know, I'm, I got to write a book. And I went to the publisher and she looked at me and she said, what are you writing the book for? You know, I want to show people my photographs. She said, you're not ready to write a book. Go away. <laughs> and then I went back a year later and, she, and I said, I want, well, what's your reason for wanting to write the book? And I said, I want to, I want to tell my story with the interest of helping other people. And she says, now nah, you're ready to write a book. She was like my mother. And mm -hmm. so it was just a, a, a brief 20-page um, um, 
description of the downfall and, and whatever, and then 16 lessons learned. And I, you give me a 400-page novel, and it, it ain't going to happen. You give me a picture and a little story, then it's going to happen. And I wanted it to make it simple. So, um, in fact, they use the, the 16 lessons learned are things like forgiveness, and they use them in group therapy where they'll pick a topic and have people relate, you know, figure forgiveness, for example. And the photos are there to sort of motivate and accentuate the, 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 um, the, the meaning. And then, so that, that one can be read in 45 minutes and it ended up, we, we made 2,500 books. They sold out, which is quite a bit for, for a book. Most, most books sell for less than a hundred, 200 books. Mm -hmm. So we republished it and it won the Ben Franklin award for, uh, for photography from the independent book publishers association, which was just amazing. And then through sober lens came out in 2019, which was the best of the, of the Facebook posts. So there were 43 pictures and 43 stories. And we even debated whether to put sober in the title, because a lot of these things just have to do with human kindness and connection. But by putting sober in, it is what it is. That's my story. And we're not limiting the audience very much. I don't think there's a family out there that hasn't been touched by addiction in some way. Um, and so it that book, you know, we, we sat there, we were supposed to go to California for the awards uh, for the Independent Book Publishers Association, but COVID hit. So it was in Zoom um, and, it, and it got a couple of awards as most inspirational story and best book design. And so the only thing good about that, other than the ego lift, is that it makes your book available to a wider audience. Right. So it helped us get the word out on that. And um it, it's it, that one has sold many many copies and um, it's just it's a book that someone can just pick up they want to look at a picture and a story that's it you can look at each one stands on its own you don't have to and, and I think a lot of the addicts and alcoholics in recovery who are you know it's resonated with them because they can just get something from that one picture mm-hmm. there's a boat hanging on to an anchor in a blizzard and I wrote the story about how after I had had that surgery that I started to become dependent on oxycodone. And I had limited the number of pills to 20. But in the end, I started to cut the pills in half. And on the last day of the last half, I lost the pill in the front seat under the seat in my car. And I got on my hands and knees for 20 minutes searching for that half a pill. And I started crying before going to work as a CEO. I wrote that story together with that boat hanging on desperately to the anchor in the blizzard because that's how I felt. And I, I told people honestly about this whole surgery thing. And, you know, even though you're an alcoholic, this, you know, this is just such a tough, you know, I'm an addict as well. And that's by telling that story, there were so many people that have surgeries that are that are alcoholics and addicts that help them or help them understand it and deal with it. And just to see that we're all human. And as much as we, you know, there are things that can happen that can throw curveballs to your recovery. And, and that's just one example in the book of, of mm-hmm. a, a photo that really says, okay, this is what it's like to be on your knees. It's like a, a boat hanging on to an anchor. The anchor is your sobriety that breaks loose. You're gone. And, um, and so that's just a, an example of that. And that's a great example because, you know, there's so many, you could talk about it. And then once you, you concisely hit a message and they say, that's me, how did you yeah. manage to capture that? How I felt in a picture, in a, in a paragraph. Um, but when you do something that says, yeah, that's exactly right. You just hit the nail on the head to use an old cliche, but 
you zero right in on it. Uh, yeah, you identify people, with it. And they were shocked that I would say that level mm. of detail on. And I don't even know what's what came over me. All right. Because yeah. this is, you know, back in the day doing saying these kinds of things on social media. What is your partly it's self-therapy because I told on myself. Yeah. And a lot of people that knew me now knew the story. And I told on myself. And that's that's in a way helps your sobriety because now you've said stuff to people that are that care about you and they're going to they're going to help you. And, and, you know, you can't hide these things anymore. So I'll admit that some of it is self-therapy. But a lot of it is then the reaction you get from people that say, thank you, I, I made changes this way, or I dealt with it that way. You know, even if it just helped one person, it's just an amazing feeling to know that because you were willing to go out on a limb and give that kind of a detail on social media in front of thousands of people that it made a difference in their life, it, it ended up being a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Some of the stories that I've told, there are people that are hurting um, when I told my story about being arrested three times for drunk driving, there were many people that said, what are you doing? You know, they should have th put you in jail and thrown the key away. We should never hear from you again. You shouldn't be telling your story like this. This is, and you know, and I have to hold space for somebody. What if that person lost their, their daughter and to a drunk driver in a, in a car accident, you know, the anger that that person has, I, I'm not in a place to judge whether why that came from that but but anybody i learned that goes out and tells their story you're going to take hits you're going to take hits and mm -hmm. you know and you can't so but if 99 percent are good and one percent's bad are you going to let the one percent take you down and at first it almost did because i was so upset of course but you know i decided no i've got to go with the 99 percent keep keep going and just realize that in this when you tell your story openly you're not going to have 100 percent of the people behind you there are, there are people that doubt or think you have ulterior motives and yeah you know mother Teresa said you know um if you're kind people may accuse you of ulterior motives but be kind right you know so <laughs> yeah and you know with the 99 percent, just think as we talked earlier you'll never know the maybe the the incidences the injuries and deaths that you prevented yeah that yeah you'll never know yeah thank um, you for that yeah yeah and that that could be the case but you know mike we didn't get to talk when you said you were arrested three times and you had mentioned earlier because i saw one of your on your uh, i think it was a facebook poster on your website when you said you know you had a choice after the third dui to go to jail yeah. or enter a program now, I think that's uh, a choice you made to say, I'll take the program. Um, <laughs> what, number one, um, talk, talk about that choice and what happened then. And then what changed and what actually was the, what stopped you from going back to drinking again? Yeah, well, first of all, the jail part freaked me out because mm -hmm. I could have gone for four or five years. And to have an attorney and to have a the health system behind me with that physician to say that you if you go to three months and there was a whole bunch of stuff that I was going to go through coming back. Yeah. But um, the fact that that physician put a sense of hope in my heart, because what even even before that, why wouldn't I go back and just kill myself? I was ready to do it. Why face this? And he he, he gave me a sense that I could, I could have some meaning come from this and that maybe there was a reason I was put here. And, and so that became the, 
the driving thing. And when I went into the rehab facility and this is, you know, the three month thing, we don't, nobody wants to hear about that from an insurance perspective, but when you go to, to a three month rehab, you, you deal with issues in the first month, you start to come back and think about strategies in the second month, the third month, you become a mentor to others. And in that third month, I helped person after person. And it surprised the hell out of me that I could actually take what I had gone through to help somebody else. That mentorship process, we don't have in a 28 day rehab. You, you, you stop drinking for 28 days. You try to, you start the steps, you go through step five, um, and you write down all your issues, the people you've harmed, the things that you need to do to go forward. But if someone really doesn't love themselves and they have no self-worth, that third month built told me that there could be a reason that I hurt people and went through all of this and that it, that I can I can take this and I can be of value and service to other people. So I felt like I left that three months with this goal in my heart to help other people. When you have something like that that pulls you, it it makes it it makes it easier to stay sober and and then somewhere in there and if i could bottle this i don't i don't know how to bottle it because people come to me all the time and i'm saying there was a knowing there was a moment of knowing that i can't i'm this is a disease that i can't beat and i came to peace with i'm an addict alcoholic if i take any and put any of it in my mouth i'm going to go down very quickly so the combination of knowing that I could turn this into something that could be a benefit to my fellow addict, alcoholic, together with the knowing that I can't drink, I came to peace on that. And then I started wanting more of the helping part. And and I'll tell you, the photography, and I talk about art and healing, um, the arts, you need to be brought out of your isolation. And and the, the camera would drag me out to places and I would bump into people and it became like Imagine every day again, coming home from work and going out and taking pictures. It was such a, a key part to my recovery is that I wasn't staying in, you know, trying not to drink wine, watching Wheel of Fortune. I, I was out on the beach. I was taking pictures and, and coming out of isolation, whatever that vehicle is, in my case, a camera became all the diff made all the difference for me. And, and so it, it was just by, you know, I don't know if I would have made it. And I'll tell you one thing, if I hadn't heard that speech about the alcoholic bipolar businessman, which I am also have a bipolar diagnosis and I have medication. And I would, I would have never been a photographer because you need to understand there wasn't an inkling of any sort to be an artist or a photographer, zero. It was only hearing that speech that set me in motion. And so that's why in the program I'm going to give for Mira Vista, um, there's a, there's a T.S. Eliot once wrote that um, that you wrote, not known because not not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves in the sea. It's that silence. Once you get broken down and you kind of lose everything, you become open to things that you would have judged differently if you still had everything. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where you become aware. And if you if you if it takes breaking down, so be it. Listen for messages. Those messages that come can change your entire life. And for me, that's what happened. That one message changed my whole life. And I chose to hear it and then act on it. And and I think others can do the same thing. I think others can do. And in your case, and, and with many others too, I think you had a, call it a hidden talent because you weren't aware of it. Uh, for a long time until you're in no, your 50s. I, honestly, I walked in my gallery after I had hung all the artwork for the first time. Yeah. I walked into the gallery and I looked around and I said, and I, I had tears in my eyes. I said, where did this all come from? Mm. 
it, it was a very spiritual moment for me and i just couldn't i couldn't believe it and and so there is it by listening to messages sometimes you get pulled to the place you were supposed to go you can't go into a school system and say okay students forget about goals forget about destinations just listen for messages and you'll be you'll be pulled to where you're supposed to go you can't do that but you can when you're an old guy who who has already screwed up the goal thing. And now if you can listen, sometimes you go to places you could have never imagined. Right. Right. Well, that that's, there's so much to your, your story. And I know both of us, we could talk uh, for a long time about this. Yeah. I'm not shy, man. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, and let's, just mention too before we um, wrap up because first of all there's an event on September 27th at Mira Vista that Michael will be there. You're going to talk about your books and photography, but more importantly, talk about your story. Um, that's at Mira Vista, which is 1233 Main Street in Holyoke on September 27th at 6 p.m. Um, and your your two books, which people can find on your website, Blanchard Photo MV, as in Martha's Vineyard.com, Blanchard Photo MV.com. Um, and if you're in Martha's Vineyard, visit the Crossroads Gallery. That's that's it's hard to get there, but once you if you're there, yeah, um, once you get flown. Right. <laughs> All right. Unless you get flown from Florida. All right. I we cut that part out. Right. I want to get political. But. I have to go to Florida first and get a free flight. <laughs> um, but your books, Fighting for My Life and Through a Sober Lens. And um and I've seen samples of it that I'll have to um take a closer look, but it, it sounds wonderful. And uh boy, I really appreciate you being on, Mike. Well, you're easy to talk to. You're doing a great thing yourself. You should be proud of yourself for doing this and getting it out here from, you know, um, great job. You do well, amazing work. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, as you were talking, I had to sort of think about it too, because just a year and a half or so ago, um, I wrote a book called Voices from the Fallen, which features eight different stories from Western Mass, all with different causes, effects, and outcomes about addiction, whether it's alcoholism or, or different drugs. And same that came out of nowhere too. And I don't know, where did this come from? Yeah. Um, so I understand that. Uh, and, and how you just keep going and you find something in you to, to get this going, which then led to this program, which again, was not expected and not in the works, not in the plans at all. Yeah, see that, man, where you just listen to what comes your way. You look at you follow through, have the courage to do it and look what you're doing. Amazing. Right. right. Yeah. And I got to meet some wonderful people, inspiring people. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Very nice. That's- Very nice. There's a concept called post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Look at in my master's program, there's researchers in Australia of all places looked at post-traumatic growth versus PTSD to see what what propels someone to places they could have never achieved through the trauma versus, you know, the pain part of it. And it's just interesting in terms of how that trauma can just catapult you into areas that you could have never imagined. So the end is not the end. It can be the beginning, right? So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You never know what awaits you if you just have the courage to step out of your comfort zone. Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, M- Michael, I, and I'm going to attend that event. I'm looking forward to it. So I'll well, get to meet you personally. All right. I know what you look at. You'll have your Patriots jacket on. So we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I woke up. It was cold this morning. I said, what the heck? You know, Damn, it was like, yeah, 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, it was great talking with you. I really appreciate it. And um, I know we'll be talking again very soon. All right. right. See you on the 27th. All right. Thank you. And uh, for everybody listening, thanks for joining us. And please visit Michael's website at BlanchardPhotoMV.com and MiraVista, MiraVistaBHC.care. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care. See you.